0: Hey, good morning. I'm Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the elders here. Handle some of the teaching and it is a joy to have you with us on this Sunday morning. Thanks for coming and joining us today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back and would love for you to grab one of those right now if you want or on your way out today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. Luke chapter 4, 31 to 44. We've been preaching through Luke. and This is where we're at today. So uh, I'm going to start. We're going to read it and then we'll talk about it. I'd invite you to stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word. Luke writes this. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. can I have a seat Now, how often uh, do you think about the Roman Empire <laughs> you 're laughing because you 've seen this. Uh, Kinsey did this to me a few weeks back, and you can ask her how I responded, but Uh, This has been going around. If you haven't seen it, you can look it up. It's uh, all over the place. But uh, today, I'm actually going to ask you to think about the Roman Empire with me. So uh, this is the Colosseum. You'll see an image up here. Uh, This is the Colosseum in Rome. And it's perhaps the best known symbol of ancient Rome. And what happened in the Colosseum? We've kind of romanticized it today. And for good reason, because this place is really incredible. If you get the chance to visit, you should. It's amazing. But uh, this was built as a place where lots of people would gather to watch other people kill each other for sport. That's what it was about. The culture of ancient Rome was such that people would come to the Colosseum to watch gladiators fight, or to watch political prisoners combat wild beasts, or to watch slaves reenact historic battles. And do you know how all of those conflicts ended? Well, they ended with a lot of blood and with real dead bodies. And that was what people did for fun in ancient Rome. See, the Colosseum was and is a symbol of the authority and the power of the Roman Empire. And Rome ruled a world wherein the powerful could do as they pleased and the powerless had to deal with the consequences. The ethic of ancient Rome was an ethic of power. Now, if you were to visit Rome today, you could start your day at the Colosseum. And then you could take a walk due northwest, basically in a straight line across the city, all the way to St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican on the other side of the city. And that walk would take you about 45 minutes. But over the course of that 45 minutes, you would leave the world of the Colosseum and the world of the Roman Empire, and you would enter into an entirely different world altogether. At the end of that walk, if you were to enter into St. Peter's Basilica, and if you were to turn to your right, you would see this marble sculpture— This is the Pieta by the great Renaissance master, Michelangelo. And in this sculpture, you see Jesus after his crucifixion. Jesus has just suffered and died on the cross at the hands of the Roman Empire. He has been a powerless victim of powerful oppressors. He's faced injustice and evil, and he's paid the ultimate price. And here his dead body is draped across his mother's lap as she grieves his death. And if you stand, as I have, and you look at this sculpture in person, it almost brings you to tears. Many people weep as they look at this sculpture. It is beautiful and it's emotive and it captures the ache of a world that is tormented by evil. The ethic of the Pieta is an ethic of love and compassion. And here's my question for you this morning as you think about these two symbols of Rome. Do we live in a world today that is a Colosseum world? Or do we live in a world today that is a pieta world? Do we live in a world where we watch death for sport? Or do we live in a world where we grieve over evil and injustice and oppression and have genuine concern for the vulnerable? My argument is that our moral imagination today is far more aligned to the pieta than it is to the Colosseum. Though certainly not perfectly, to a high degree, we live in a pieta world, or at least aspirationally. Where at least in theory, we want to be a people who care about the vulnerable, where we cry foul when the powerful try to take advantage of the powerless. In our world today, we look, for example, at what is happening in Israel right now, and we say, no, that's not right. In ancient Rome, they had no problem with war like that, but we do. And why is that? How did we get from the Colosseum to the Pieta? What changed in our world? Well, this morning to answer that question, I want to take you back to one specific day in history. The date is unknown, but it happened around a half century before the Colosseum was constructed. The Colosseum was finished in eighty AD, and our day today happened sometime in the early thirties. Our day is recorded in the passage that I read a moment ago. We've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke and looking at the life of Jesus before that fateful day on which he was crucified. And last week, Phil read to us Jesus' first recorded sermon in a synagogue in Nazareth, where Jesus read from the book of Isaiah and said, said that he came to proclaim good news to the poor. And when that sermon ended, the people of Nazareth, they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. But Jesus walked on. And in Luke 4, 31 to 44, we see what happened next. The verses I read a moment ago all happened on a single day. It is one single day in Jesus' life. And this one day where Jesus puts his own sermon into action and demonstrates good news to the poor, this one day shows us what happened to take us from a Colosseum world to a Pieta world. In this story, we meet some interesting characters. There's a demon-possessed man. There's a woman who has a high fever. There are sick people. And there are other demoniacs. All of them are Jews who live in a backwater corner of the Roman Empire, far from the center of power. They are members of an oppressed people who are at the margins of mainstream society. These are the poor of Luke 4.18. These are the people who did not matter to Rome. These people lived in a world where there was no social social security. There was no community health care. There were no mental health treatment facilities. There were no emergency rooms. There were no counseling centers. If you were sick, it was up to your loved ones to take care of you. If they couldn't, you died. If you were a danger to yourself or to others, they would chain you up outside of town. If you were mentally ill, they'd cast you away. These were people Rome did not care about. The people we read about this morning are Pieta people living in a Colosseum world. But then there's one more character in our story. And he's the main character. And this day is really all about him. And we meet him in verse 31. Look there with me. The he in verse 31 is Jesus. And in verse 31, he leaves Nazareth and the whole cliff incident. And he quite literally goes down to Capernaum, which was some 680 feet below sea level. And when he arrives, our day begins. There are four scenes in this day. The first scene in our story opens with Jesus in a synagogue on a Saturday morning. Saturday was and still is the Jewish Sabbath. And so all the people are gathered in the synagogue and Jesus is teaching them. So this is the visiting pastor coming through and preaching in church. And look at how people responded to his teaching in verse 32. Luke tells us the people were astonished. The same word appears back in Luke 2.48 when Jesus is interacting with the teachers in the temple when he's a young boy. People were astonished by him then and they're astonished again by him here. And the word astonished means, and this is literally what one of the Greek lexicon says here, to be astonished is to be or to become astounded to such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure. Translation, mind blown, mind blown. And why were their minds blown by Jesus? Well, Luke tells us it's because Jesus' word possessed authority. Possessed authority. Now, while Jesus is teaching, there's a man present in the gathering who has the spirit of an unclean demon. In our modern world, we tend to be pretty skeptical about things like demons. And what's interesting is that the Bible itself actually says very little about demons overall. Really, the only place where Scripture talks about demons is during the life and ministry of Jesus. Demons don't really appear at all in the Old Testament, and they are rarely mentioned in the New Testament after the Gospels. But during Jesus' public ministry, there's a high concentration of intense confrontation with demons. And why might that be? Well, 1 John 3, verse 8 tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so Jesus explicitly came to destroy Satan's works. The devil, Satan, is evil. And demons are his minions. And Satan knows that Jesus came to the world to take him out. And so Satan put up a fight. He comes at Jesus in the wilderness earlier in Luke 4. And then he deploys his minions throughout Jesus' ministry in an attempt to make life difficult for Jesus. And for that reason, it makes a ton of sense that we see a concentration of demonic activity around Jesus' ministry. Now today, when we think about demons, as C.S. Lewis famously pointed out, there are two equal and opposite errors that we can make. In the Screwtape letters, Lewis wrote that one error is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons themselves, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist, someone who disbelieves in demons, or a magician who obsesses over them. They hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Demons are cool either way. Now in the coming weeks as we journey through Luke's gospel, we'll talk more about demons. But for today, what I need you to know is this. Demons are real. Demons exist. And they can have a real influence on the affairs of people. There is a real unseen spiritual realm happening around us. And we need to be aware of that realm. Some battles in our lives are not just biological or psychological. Some battles are spiritual. And when a battle is a spiritual battle, you need to, as Paul teaches us in Ephesians 6, you need to put on the full armor of God. You'll only win a spiritual battle using spiritual means. But as you fight those real spiritual battles, you also need to recognize that demons are not all powerful, nor are they always present. Not every bad thing that happens in your life is the result of demonic activity. Not every negative thought or every physical ailment that happens to you in life is caused by demons. We live in a broken world, and in a broken world, bad things do take place, but not all of those are the result of demons. And so here's the bottom line on demons for today. We need to be aware of demons while not obsessing over them. We need to be aware of demons while not obsessing over them. And that brings us back to our scene in Luke. There is a demon that is acting upon this man in the synagogue, and the dude is causing a scene. In verse 34, he cries out in a loud voice. Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Like some of y'all think it's distracting to have kids in the service. This was next level. And so Jesus takes action. In verse 35, he rebukes the demon and he commands him to shut up and come out of the man. And what happens? The demon listens. The demon listens. Now there are stories of other exorcisms in the ancient world. And almost universally, those stories involve elaborate rituals and incantations. If you've ever seen a horror movie or a documentary about exorcism, it usually takes that kind of form. But what did this exorcism require? What did this take from Jesus? Only his words. Jesus speaks and the demon departs. And what's more, when the demon departs, what happens to the man? The man is not destroyed, rather, he is left completely unharmed. He's completely fine. This is the first miracle in the Gospel of Luke. And appropriately, it is a battle with demonic forces. And the victory by total knockout goes to Jesus. He wins. And look at how the people respond to his victory in verse 36. They were all amazed. Awe falls upon the crowd. They've never seen anything like this before. This was not a normal everyday occurrence. And notice what it is in particular that has left them awestruck. They say, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. So in verse 32, it was Jesus's authority that left them astonished. And here again in verse 36, it is Jesus' authority that leaves them amazed. The word authority in the Greek is the word ekousia. Ekousia. And ekousia is a compound word. It has a prefix ek, which means from or out of. And it has a root, "ousia," which comes from the verb to be. And so ekousia literally means out of being. Out of being. And when the people say here that Jesus has ecousia, what they mean is that what he says has substance to it. It comes out of his being, out of the substance, out of the weightiness, out of the, the beingness of who he is. Now, I love learning and I read a lot of books. And when I read books, I often look at the footnotes. Does anybody else do that? Any, anybody else into footnotes? Okay, a few, a few other nerds in the room that, okay, you can, yeah, don't judge me. But I look at the footnotes because I want to see where a scholar is drawing from as he or she makes an argument. I want to see what sources have informed his or her teaching. And generally speaking, the best scholars are the ones who are the most widely read. They cite dozens or even hundreds of other works in their, in their books. But here's the thing with Jesus. Jesus. He has authority, but he doesn't have any footnotes. He's not an authority because he's read all the best literature in his field. No, he himself is authority. And his authority comes from who he is. No footnotes required. Jesus speaks and people are astonished. Jesus speaks and demons obey what he says. Jesus' word has that kind of authority. Now verse 37 shows us the result of this scene. Reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Jesus goes viral. He's everywhere. Which brings us to scene two. The second scene of the day begins in verse 38. It's now afternoon. Jesus leaves the synagogue and enters into Simon's house. Simon here is Simon Peter, better known simply as Peter. We'll see a lot more of him later, but this is his first appearance in Luke's gospel. And one interesting detail we learn about Peter here is that he was married. He has a mother-in-law, which means he also has a wife. Usually you don't just draft a mother-in-law unless you marry into that, right? So he has a wife. And as an interesting historical side note, the early church historian Eusebius tells us that Peter's wife was active in women's ministry and that Peter had children. And so Peter's family became a ministry family later on. But for today, the point is not Peter or his wife, but actually his wife's mom. And Peter's mother-in-law is ill. She has a high fever, literally a mega fever. This may have been dysentery, we don't know exactly, but in any case, she's not in good shape. And so the people in the house asked Jesus to do something about this. And their logic here checks out. I mean, they've just seen Jesus deal with a demon. He went viral for that. And so they figure a fever shouldn't be a problem for this guy. And look at what Jesus does in verse 39. Just as he rebuked the demon in verse 35, so too he rebukes the fever in verse 39. And just as the demon listened to Jesus back there, so too the fever listens to Jesus right here. And just as in verse 35 the demon came out of the man, in verse 39 the fever leaves Peter's mother-in-law. And just as the man was left unharmed and made well, so too is this woman unharmed and made well. She immediately gets up and she starts playing hostess. And all it took for Jesus to accomplish all of that was his word. He speaks and demons obey. He speaks and diseases obey. His word has that kind of authority. And so in this one day so far, Jesus has shown his authority over both demons and disease. Quite the day. But Jesus still is not finished. The third scene in this passage takes us to the evening. In verse 40, the sun is setting. The Sabbath that started with teaching in the synagogue ends here. And under Jewish law, no work was to be done on the Sabbath. But at sundown, that restriction ends. And so Luke tells us that all those in the city who had any people in their homes or in their families, any relatives or friends or loved ones, if they had anyone who was sick with various diseases, they brought those people to Jesus at sundown. So everyone who couldn't walk or wasn't allowed to be carried to Jesus during the Sabbath day at sundown, now they come, now they're brought to him. And these are people with various diseases. Now the word disease is not a pretty word today. And it wasn't a pretty condition in the first century. To be diseased in the first century was to be a social outcast. There was a strong social stigma attached to disease that if you had some kind of ongoing disease, it was probably likely that you had some kind of moral failing or sin problem in your life. Like this disease came upon you because you were bad. You did something wrong. And so if you were diseased, people would generally stay away from you. They didn't want to catch whatever you had, whether it was physical or moral. They didn't want what you had. And we got a taste of that kind of stigma over the last few years where if you had COVID, you had to stay away from people or maybe more to the point, if you had COVID, people stayed away from you. If you were coughing or sneezing, what would people do? They they kind of like jump back from you, like don't don't get too close. In fact, uh, Kinsey and I and the boys, we were were actually hiking in a forest preserve one time. We were perfectly healthy. Nothing going on. This is during COVID. We go outside into the woods. And this woman comes by and reprimands us because we weren't wearing our masks in the woods. Like, I don't want to catch whatever you have. I've got to keep my distance. That's the kind of thing we're looking at here. People keep their distance. But look at what Jesus does when these diseased people show up. It's shocking. Do you see it there in verse 40? Everyone else in town keeps their distance, wears a mask, stays away. But what does Jesus do? He lays his hands on every one of them and he heals them. Luke is sure to point out two things in this verse. One is that Jesus touched them He wasn't concerned about catching their disease. Rather, he was concerned about them catching his healing. And two, is that it's every one of them. Every last one of these people. One by one, he goes and he lays his hands on them and he touches them and extends his healing to them. He touches them, every last one of them. Now, Jesus didn't have to do that. He could have kept his distance. With Peter's mother in law, all he did was speak. That was enough for the healing. But here, Jesus lays his hands on every last one of them, and that is on purpose. It's, it's to show Jesus' personal care for these precious people. The world might keep their distance, but Jesus gets up close and personal because he cares. And look, if you're here today and you're dealing with some kind of condition that keeps people away from you, like if you feel like, like, like you're untouchable in some way, like you've done something or something's been done to you where, where you can't get close, where no one wants to touch you and you gotta keep distance. If you feel like that in any kind of way, you need to know that that's not how Jesus feels about you. Jesus has reached out his hand to you. He knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows everything you've done, everything that's happened in your life. And he's not scared away. He loves you and he's extending his hand to you. And there's an invitation here to just let him do it. Come to him. Bring whatever's going on in your life to him. Let him give you healing. Now, look at verse 41. Because verse 41 creates a little bookend to the structure of this section. We started with a demon, and then we had one disease, and then we had many diseases, and now we see many demons. And what Luke is doing is he's showing us the ever expanding scope of Jesus' authority. It's not just one and done, he's not a one trick pony. In verse 40, he heals all the sick, and here in verse 41, he casts out many demons. And Jesus has authority over them all. Now the main theme that has been running through Luke's gospel since at least chapter 3 is the question of Jesus' identity. Who is this guy? And here in this section we see further identity statements being made about Jesus. Up in verse 34 when the unclean demon comes out of the man, the demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Then here in verse 41, demons cry out, you are the son of God. And on the surface, it seems that these kind of statements would be beneficial to Jesus's mission. These are right statements of his identity. Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is the son of God. That's who he is. That's the argument Luke has been making. And that's who Jesus knows himself to be. And did you see how Jesus responds in both instances here? In verse 35, he responds to that right confession of his identity by rebuking the demon and saying, be silent. And then in verse 41, again, he rebukes the demons and does not allow them to speak. They get it right, but he shuts them up. And Luke actually tells us that he shuts them up because they knew that he was the Christ. So he shuts them up precisely because they know the right answer. So what's going on here? Well, for Jews of the first century world, they had lived under the oppression of foreign empires for many centuries. Theirs was an occupied territory, a land where they lived, but not a land where they ruled. And when they thought of the Christ, of the promised Messiah, whom God would one day send to save them, what they thought of was a political savior. They thought of someone who would come and who would lead an army and who would defeat Rome on the field of battle and establish Israel as an independent power on the world scene. And when they heard Christ, that's what they thought it meant. They thought it meant to call to arms. And here's Jesus. And he is the Christ. But he's not a political savior. He did not come to overthrow Rome and to establish the kingdom of Israel. No, Jesus' purposes were far bigger. And he doesn't want people who are confused about what it means for him to be the Christ to compromise his greater mission. And that's why he silences these demons. They have the right answer, but he doesn't want people getting the wrong idea. And so in verse 42, the next morning, at the end of this incredible 24-hour period, Jesus leaves the crowds behind and he goes to a desolate place by himself. He's trying to get away. But the people here have seen things they've never seen before and they want to see more of it. And so they seek him out and they find him and they recruit him to stay and build a mega church right there in town. Like they want Jesus to run for office. They want Jesus to go and be their king and to lead them into battle. But Jesus has a mission to accomplish. And in verse 43, he articulates that mission. Look at what he says. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I must. I have to. I can't not do it. I can't stay here because I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Now to have a kingdom requires a few key elements. You must have a king and you must have a people who give allegiance to that king. Who submit to that king's authority in their lives. So I need your help here today for a second. A little audience participation If you're sleeping, I need you to wake up, okay? So in the United Kingdom today, uh, Luke, Phil, in the United Kingdom today, who is the king in the United Kingdom? Charles. I didn't hear you say it, but Charles, yes. Charles is the king. And people give allegiance to the king. And in the kingdom that was the Roman Empire, who was the king? Caesar. Caesar, he was the king, and people gave their allegiance to him as king. And so in the kingdom of God then, who is the king? God. And people in the kingdom of God give their allegiance to God. And Jesus here is saying that his mission is to announce the good news of God's kingdom. In other words, to announce that God's kingdom has arrived. That God's kingdom is here. Now back in Luke 4.18... Jesus read from the book of Isaiah these words. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. To proclaim good news. It's the same word in the Greek as we see here in verse 43. And so the Spirit came upon Jesus in order to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. And the people we've been reading about today, they are the poor, those possessed by demons. Those with various diseases, those no one wanted to touch, those oppressed by conquering powers, those cast out by society. These are the poor. And do you know what the good news to the poor is? It's that a new king has come on the scene. A better king, God himself in the person of Jesus. And in this whole section today, Jesus has been showing us what that good news to the poor looks like. And what it looks like is Jesus setting people free. It looks like Jesus healing people. It looks like Jesus touching the untouchable. It looks like Jesus making people whole. And it looks a lot more like a Pieta world than it does a Colosseum world. It looks like an ethic of love and compassion in a world of raw power. The key word in our passage today is the word authority. Kings and kingdoms are all about authority. Authority world history is a story of battles over authority the kings of this world have based their claim to authority on the substance of their armies but jesus's authority came from the substance of his very being it came out of him he did not need footnotes and he did not need foot soldiers all he needed was his word he spoke and demons fled and diseases disappeared and people were made whole And therefore, the central claim of this passage is that even in a Colosseum world where evil often runs rampant, true authority does not reside with any evil spiritual force, whether in ancient Rome or in Israel or in modern Chicago or anywhere else on the planet. True authority does not reside with evil. Rather, true authority resides with Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus Christ is not a mere moralist teaching people how to live better lives. He is not merely a motivator offering insightful inspiration. He is not merely a psychologist proffering advice so you can have better mental health. You might find all those things in Jesus, but that is not who Jesus is. No, Jesus Christ is who the demons in the story knew him to be. He is the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the Christ. And he came with full authority to bring God's kingdom and to defeat demons and to destroy diseases and to erase the evil that plagues humanity. And a few days, a few years after the day described in this passage, Jesus himself was sentenced to die on a Roman cross. Like the Colosseum, the cross was a symbol of Roman power and authority. Rome used the cross to send a message to its enemies about its power. And if you crossed the empire, you were likely to end up hanging on a cross. Rome used the cross to put its enemies to death. But today the cross is no longer a symbol of Rome, Rather, it has become a symbol of the good news of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, despite all of his power and authority, despite the good news that he showed and the good news that he shared and the healing and the hope that he brought, despite all the good that he did, Jesus Christ went to the cross willingly and allowed himself to be put to death in place of his enemies. He did not assert his authority by destroying those who rejected him, Rather, he willingly laid down his authority and laid down his life and died for those who rejected him. And then on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead. And today, Jesus sits in his rightful place on the throne of heaven, wielding all authority and all power and offering new and true life to all who would trust in him. That is the good news of the gospel. And because that good news is true, the cross has now become a symbol not of Rome, but of Jesus Who died on the cross and rose from the grave. And so how did our world go from being a Colosseum world to being a Pieta world? Well as even secular historians like Tom Holland, who's not to be confused with the Spider-Man actor, even as secular historians like Tom Holland have clearly shown it all started with Jesus and the good news of the kingdom of God that he declared and demonstrated throughout his life and most clearly at the cross. See, Jesus introduced a new kind of authority into the world. It was an authority used not to take life, but to give it. An authority used not to hurt, but to heal. An authority that actually reaches out a compassionate hand and touches the untouchable. An authority that lays down its rights and lays down its life, even for its enemies. And as the Colosseum was being built in Rome, a new kind of kingdom was being built throughout the Mediterranean world. It was not made of brick or stone and it did not derive its authority from swords or shields. It was built of people. People like the people we read about in this story today who had been set free, who had been healed, who had been transformed and restored and made whole by the authority of King Jesus and the good news that he brought. And as more and more people throughout the world placed themselves under his authority and listened to his word and followed him as their true and better king, Slowly but surely, the world began to take a new shape. It began to look a lot less like the Colosseum and a lot more like the Pietà. All because people traded the authority of empire for the authority of Jesus and his cross. You see, it was the authority of Jesus that changed the ancient world. And it's the authority of Jesus that can change your world today. There is only one person who has true authority. Is he your authority? Is he your authority? Is Jesus your king? Do you believe the good news of the kingdom of God? And are you submitting your life to him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text today. It is a beautiful picture of the good news to the poor, the good news of the kingdom on display that we need to see. Father, I pray for those who are here today, who have been oppressed by demons, by evil spiritual forces, who are facing battles in their minds and in their hearts. By the authority of Jesus today, would you set them free? Father, I pray for those who are sick, who are in need of healing. By the authority of Jesus today, would you bring that healing into their lives? I pray for those of us who are facing difficulty in any kind of way in our lives. By the authority of Jesus, would you give us life today and would you help us? God, would you make us a people who do not bow our knee before the kings of this world, but who instead bow our knees before Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Would we be a people marked by his authority? by his ethic of love and compassion for the people around us and not by the ethic of power that so often plagues our world. We pray that just as the ethic of Jesus changed the ancient world, that it would change our hearts today and it would change our world today as we live as God, as your people, as we live out the good news of your kingdom in the world around us. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.